Today's show is brought to you by Facebook. Over the past year, Facebook has been no stranger to the conversation happening around fake news. Get an inside look at what the company's doing to fight against misinformation with Facebook's new short film, Facing Facts. Watch at InsideFeed.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City, all the way downtown, very far from the Wall Street Journal offices. So I'm very grateful that Kichagi came to visit us. Kichagi, did I pronounce your, your last name correctly? That's right. First name I got. Welcome. Thanks for having me. You are one of the kick-ass media reporters at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you have a kick-ass book called The Can Content, all about Sumner Redstone. Great time to be promoting a book, I think, about media moguls, media mergers. Downside is you also have to spend your day job writing about media mergers and media moguls. It's been a kind of an insane week. You're yes. multitasking. <laughs> uh, you have two big stories in the journal today. One is an excerpt from this book, and the other is a great piece about Fox and Disney and Comcast and that battle. And I want to talk to you about that for a minute because we're recording this on Friday. You guys will hear this six days later, so who knows what will happen in the interim. But I want to get a sense of the state of play. So your piece essentially lays out the background between the Fox-Disney-Comcast battle. And the general thesis is the Murdochs, say and maybe even believe they really do want to do this deal with Disney and they don't want to do it with Comcast. Am I summarizing that correctly? That is true. I have to put a, you know asterisks at the top of any yeah. of this that, of course, they, they say they're going to take the, the highest bid. They have to, the legally. One, of course, and the one most likely to close. That's yeah. important because there's a lot of doubt about whether Comcast can get anything through um, with regulators from the Fox side. Um, but look, they like Disney because they're most like Disney. The, Mur- the Murdochs are selling. Why does Rupert Murdoch, who, when you bu- sell a house, you generally don't care who buys the house, maybe you have an emotional attachment to the house, but you're selling it. You're not going to live in it anymore. Here are these assets. Take them. Why, why, do, why does Rupert Murdoch care who buys his assets? Well, first of all, it depends on whether you're selling for cash or stock, mm-hmm. right? So if you're selling for stock, you're getting part of the other person's house. Yep. And the Murdochs really like um, Disney's house, Bob Iger's house. You know, they, they To miss- be clear, right now, the Comcast deal is for much more money. Um, cash. At this point, yeah. uh, Disney's sweeten bid is actually higher in value. You're um, right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm two stories behind. Uh, well, it goes but fast. Com- yeah. But who, who knows what's yes, going to exactly. be, be the case in, in a few days. Um, but... A lot of what our story uh, today was about was about the earlier negotiations and why um, the Murdochs basically weren't interested in what seemed like a higher number that was for cat, um, a higher number from Comcast. Um, back then, it was actually a different structure of a deal than a lower number from Disney. And that's been the the Fox stance from the beginning with this deal. As soon as they announced the Disney deal, and we talked about even even before it was officially announced, and it was sort of. A, out there, the messaging was, this is, we really only want to do it with Disney, which didn't seem very believable because in the end, if you're up for sale, you're up for sale, right? Yes. Um, but you believe they legitimately would rather go and sell to Disney. Oh, for sure. Listen, again, they're going to take the highest price, but they were excited about the idea of their assets being part of the Disney machine. I mean, Rupert Murdoch built this company. It is actually his baby. So yeah. he does sort of care what happens to it. And, of course, he cares about the the number, and he likes Disney stock. He likes being part of the upside of uh, appreciation and value of Disney stock. And then the early negotiation, there was a little talk, right, about uh, James Murdoch yeah. maybe getting a job at Disney. That went away. 
But that was certainly part of the first negotiations that made them go with Disney over Comcast the first time around. This is why it's still fun to write about media moguls, right? Because they're not just media companies. They're, they're human beings. They have faults. Um, they have some upsides. Um, it's fun to write about both of them. Usually more fun to write about the faults. Have you seen the HBO show Succession? I have. Have you seen all of the episodes? I have. So it's, it's normally described as a show about the Murdochs, fictionalized show about the Murdochs. There's a lot of re- Sumner Redstone in there, too. That is right. It's interesting, right? The, the, did you get consulted? Did you get a fee <laughs> for this? You know, I did not, but uh, my predecessor on the media beat, Marissa Marr, a uh, Wall Street Journal former yeah. media bureau chief, she was uh, a consultant on it. And I feel like I can, I don't know, I haven't talked to her about this, but I can hear the Marissa parts of the of the script or the, the the plot points, especially about uh, you know when the the stock the debt uh, yes the exactly debt, the, 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 is, it, is it called a margin call it's, yeah, they, the uh, margin call the exactly. margin call so we're spoiling episode three but no, oh no uh, sorry no no it's fine Weird. honestly like I think the entire audience for for that show listens to this podcast <laughs> I, my sense is it's a niche show uh-huh. much to HBO's chagrin but yeah there's there's a lot there's a there's a plot point in there like you alluded to that is literally a, a key point in the book correct the Redstone book. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're just watching that for the first time going, oh, shit, that's my story. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I would say, to me, I feel like that story is almost more Redstone than Murdoch. Yes, the, the, the three kids is happens to be the structure of a, of a Murdoch thing. But, you know, the questions about the, the stroke and the questions about whether the, the mogul has his marbles, um, that's pure redstone. What do you find appealing about covering? You've really done really well with the Viacom story and writing about Sumner Redstone in particular. You, you do the corporate media beat generally, um, but, but you sort of specialize in in these kind of figures. What What is appealing about them to you as, as people to cover? Well, I love the intersection of the business story and the family story. Exactly what you said. It's not just a pure number story because these, especially these two companies or these two empires, you know, the Murdoch Empire and the Redstone Empire, those are controlled companies. So there's just a lot of sort of soap opera drama that goes on. Spell this out. They're they're public companies. Yes. But they're essentially family companies because... Because there's a two-tiered stock structure where the families have super voting control. Uh, It's a little little more nuanced in the Murdoch situation, but the the basic dynamics are there. They own a minority of the equity, but they have an overly large percentage of the voting. New York Times, same structure, and then a lot of tech companies um, are structured the same way. Google, Facebook, Snap... Um, Twitter is one of the ones that's an exception. But a lot of these folks said, oh, we'll go public. We'll, t- we'll take the public's money, but we're, we're still going to control this company. And that, that, is a, that is a hallmark of these big media empires. That's right. Um, and we're going to see that very structure tested this summer, actually, in the, the litigation between uh, CBS and Sherry Redstone and National Amusements. I mean, CBS, rather astonishingly, is attacking the fundamental concept of a controlled company in Delaware court. So we're, we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about Sherry Redstone and, and some of this fight, but if you had to handicap, well, there's, two, there's two interesting stories, right? There's, the, there's a bunch of interesting stories. If you had to handicap the Sherry Redstone versus Les Moonves, the, the, that, that fight, who do you think comes out victorious in the end? Um, I think it would be very, very hard to imagine a Delaware court overturning the concept of voting control, mm-hmm. which is kind of what CBS... Meaning Sherry Redstone would, would win I, that yeah. fight if, if, if it goes all the way through court. Uh, the counter is, separate from the court battle, is does Sherry Redstone really want to be fighting Les Moonves for weeks and months and, and, and longer, perhaps? The argument is she, she has actually more to lose than he does. Well, if you're asking, is a settlement the most likely yeah. outcome? Probably. Yeah. Sure. Um, I, I think 
he's a very talented executive. She doesn't really want to have to overhaul the whole board. So if there was some way that they could come away with the settlement where she promises not to mess with the board too much and, you know, he stays on for a couple years while they, you know, ha- I don't know, try to have some M&A solution to everything, um, that would be best for shareholders probably. And the Comcast, Disney, Fox fight, again, by the time you hear this, who knows where we'll be in that in that narrative. But if you had to predict out, who do you think ends up walking away with the Fox assets? It does seem like Disney has the upper hand yeah. right now. This is an annoying answer, but I also have been talking to people about the character of uh, Brian Roberts. They believe he's not going to stop. Yeah. That he is going to bid a silly amount of money. And one of the arguments is it's actually more, it's, it is, this is a bigger deal for him than it is for Disney, that he needs, he needs these assets more than Disney does. You can argue both ways, I guess. Sure. Although a lot of people believe it's not even that he needs the assets. He just needs Disney to not have them. You know. Robert's family, another, another, (laughs) another, another family, a family controlled media company. Yeah. It's weird. The media mogul beat, I think, was in some ways a more attractive one kind of prior to the internet. Yeah. Um, I think New York publications probably, like, if you were if you were, worked at the Times, worked at the Journal, this stuff would frequently end up on A1, which meant you, you, you won for the day. Uh, I think the internet's blown that up for a bunch of reasons. Um, do you have a sense that as attractive a story as you and I find these personally, that there's, there's less resonance sort of out in the wider world um, in terms of these that these battles aren't followed as closely as, as you and I think they should be. That's probably true. Um, th- this is a mature industry, yeah. right? So what, what these stories are about is sort of the, the waning days of something that's being attacked by something much bigger, Google and Facebook. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And um, that battle is is fascinating, right? Um, <laughs> the final days of, some, of something very, very powerful being overtaken. Is, right. Is, All these moves are happening because of the internet. The internet is where the action is. Then weirdly, the internet doesn't give us moguls that are nearly as interesting, right? Most people couldn't tell you what Larry Page looked like. Yeah. And one of the weirdest things is despite all of this, you know, media company CEOs are still by far the highest paid group of CEOs anywhere it's in a great America. Racket. I know. And so it's, it's because they're basically paid like, like talent. There's this idea that you know something in addition to the financial realities. You know, you have a, an eye for talent and an eye for scripts. I mean, even that's how Les Moonves is right. paid which it's really hard to imagine that being the same. I suppose you could say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has an eye for picking good engineers. Yeah, the, 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 the tech version is they're product genius, right? That's the Mark Zuckerberg, that's Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Evan Spiegel. That's the, that's the mantle they all sort of aspire to, yeah, whether but, it's true or not. But the pixie dust, the halo around media moguls is still yeah. financially there anyway, if not maybe um, there in the eyeballs. Let's talk about Sumner Redstone for a bit. Maybe for, for a while. This is, the book is The King of Content, Sumner Redstone's Battle. Mm-hmm. My alternate title would be, holy shit, what a batshit crazy story this guy was. And we've, <laughs> we've, all, we've all forgotten. Um, I think some of this stuff hasn't been out there before, and a lot of the stuff has been. And, and it's, it's, again, it's sort of washed over how crazy Sumner Redstone's life story, um, building up Viacom, sort of losing Viacom. Um, the last few years of his life alone are full-on bananas. They, again... Can literally be an HBO show. <laughs> um, for people who aren't familiar with Sumner Redstone, how did he build Viacom? Where did where did Viacom come from? How did he get to Viacom to begin with? So he did not actually 
build yep. Viacom. Viacom was sort of the this, this spinoff leftovers from How did he build himself into a person who could control Viacom? Yeah. So he, he, he got to a position where he could take it over in the 80s, um, basically by working for his father's drive-in theater company for a bunch of years. This is a regional drive-in theater company. Regional drive-in yeah. theater company yeah. based in Massachusetts. Right. This is what's now National Amusements. National Amusements. Um, and they changed the drive-ins into indoor theaters, into, into multiplexes. And, and his father, right, is, you detail this in the book, is a, what we call a colorful character. <laughs> yes. You know, someone who hung out in, in the nightclub business with questionable characters and maybe some mob associations in Boston. Yes, right. So, uh, Sumner joined his father's business. That's sort of the most important thing I feel like to, to take away from him is he didn't he didn't build this. He literally right. was handed a drive-in theater business from his father, who really did build it from from nothing with some help from some bookies and bootleggers, of which he was maybe one. Um, and for many decades, Sumner had a you know a, a middle class, upper middle class life in Boston suburbs, running a regional. Big deal in the Boston area. Right. No one had ever heard of this person outside of that. Um, But he was a really smart guy, photographic memory, really got into stock investing in the late 70s. Lawyer. Yes. Um, And with a really great uh, understanding of antitrust law, which helped him throughout. But he, the way that he really got Viacom was he started investing in stocks, in studio stocks. Fox was, was like a standalone company, the, the studio, and Columbia. These are almost standalone companies before they were gobbled up by these conglomerates. Made a killing because in the theater business, he got to see the movies before everybody else. So he would, you know, see, see Star Wars, yeah. the famous story goes, and go across the street and, you know, buy a bunch of Fox shares. Um Hard to imagine today, but that's really what he did. He spent all day on the phone with his stockbroker obsessively. His entire life obsessed with stock price. Obsessed. Comically so. Right. Yes. I mean, it it sort of undid him at the end. But the reason he was so obsessed is because he was rewarded insanely for it from the late 70s through the early 80s. And um, he had had enough of a war chest. He had about like $400 million. And that was enough actual equity that at the height of the LBO crisis, he could look at Viacom, this sort of... The leverage buyout crisis. Exactly, exactly. Um, And uh, he could look at Viacom, which was sort of an undervalued asset. He saw all the eyeballs from movie theaters going to cable and thought, you know, I would rather be exposed to... Viacom is chiefly at that point the MTV company. Yes, it had actually just bought MTV like a, a couple years okay. before, but it basically it had like um, syndicated TV shows like Gunsmoke. They were all in the CBS library. It had very, very young MTV networks so of MTV and Nickelodeon and um, sort of other bits and bobs. Um, but it wasn't one of these great media companies yet, but he saw opportunity there. And um, when the management of, of Viacom was trying to do their own leverage buyout to sort of take it over, uh, he decided to fight them. Um, he thought they were paying too low of a price. So he buys Viacom what year? And that was 1987. So really great timing, right? Cable boom is is cresting. MTV is a big deal, but is going to get bigger. Yeah, lands uh, and then and then and then goes on this crazy run. Before we go to break, just to pick your brain here. How much? Of, I think you, you flick at this a couple different times. How much of of his success do you attribute to his savvy in terms of um, financial manipulation? Manipulation is the wrong word. Mechanics versus sort of uh, managing and, and strategizing about where the company is going. I think he understood big picture concepts like the theater business is being disrupted by cable. He understood that in his bones 
yeah. early, and he was sort of unemotional about that. Um, the business that made me a lot of money, maybe rich, is, is yep. going away. I need to find a new thing. Right. And he did that a couple times in his life. So big picture, his strategy was good. But his success, I really put down to understanding stock price and investing in the sort of financial mechanics. So that run that Viacom has up through really the late 90s, right, basically right up to the dot-com bubble, um, you don't attribute that success to anything he did as a manager or strategic moves he made within Viacom? Well, he did make a run at, at Paramount, and he did get a lot bigger. So that was certainly strategic and helpful. Mm-hmm. But that that amazing run, that was just paid television expanding. That was a secular expansion of more houses signing up for paid television. So if you own cable networks, your boat was going to rise. Right. No matter and, what. And it, it's sort of hard to remember now because these things are on the wane, but there was a period where there were these really marginal cable networks like USA or whatever that you just came with your cable package and no one thought they were valuable at all. And then over time, they became incredibly valuable because they got packaged with these bundles. Now they're very threatened. We're come, we're, we've almost come full circle. Um, while we think about that for a minute, let's hear a message from a sponsor. Did I say that right, Golda? Today's show is brought to you by Simply Safe. In 2017, the Better Business Bureau heard more than 5,000 complaints about alarm companies. That makes home security one of the industries people complain about the most. Here's how you can fix that. You do what my friends over at Simply Safe did. They get rid of contracts and hidden fees. They work hard to earn their customers' business instead of relying on tricks and fine print. Simply Safe is a company that treats you right. How rare is that today? A company that actually sells you a product you want to buy. They've had an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for 10 years running and more than 40,000 five-star reviews online. Simply Safe is what home security should be. Learn more about Simply Safe at simplysafe.com slash media. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I, safe.com slash media to protect your home and family with an A-plus home security system. Simplysafe.com slash media. Today's show is brought to you by Facebook Inside Feed. If you've been watching the news or reading the paper during the past few months, you know that Facebook has been a part of the national conversation happening around fake news and the spread of misinformation on the internet. Directed by Morgan Neville, the short film Facing Facts provides an inside look at how Facebook is working on this complex issue. This 12-minute piece goes behind the scenes at Facebook's headquarters to reveal what the company is thinking about and how it's working to get ahead of this complicated problem. The film is a unique way for you to learn more about the issue directly from the people who work on it every day. Get an inside look at Facebook's fight against misinformation. Watch the film at InsideFeed.com. Back here with Keith Hagee. Uh, we're going to do the extended podcast instead of the super short podcast. Awesome. Not the two-hour one. It's good. This thing I keep coming back to in the Sumner Redstone book is his business is is in decline now, right? Which is why his daughter now wants to combine Viacom and CBS. They, those companies keep getting combined, split apart, combined. Now she wants to combine them again. Um, and as we'll talk about, he he appears to no longer be in control of his body or mind. Um, but even without that, do you think that he would have been able to figure a way out of the problem that is besetting Viacom and the rest of the media business? That's a question I try to sort of ask at the end of the book. And here's what I think. He had a brilliant legal mind for antitrust. And I feel like that might be a useful skill to have in the current media environment where all of these media companies are facing competition with Facebook 
and Google. And that's a drum that the Murdoch family has been beating for about a decade. Yeah. Um, without any success. Correct. Yeah, so the current version of antitrust law yeah. doesn't really leave a big door open for that, but he's, he was able throughout his life, decade after decade, to use antitrust law to win business cases. Sometimes you just use it as a threat. Sometimes, right. you know, you just ra- rattle your saber. Um, and then, by the way, one of his moves was to go after YouTube, to yeah. sue YouTube. Right. Did not work at all. Spent Did six not. years, got really nothing for it. That's right. I mean, he was, to be fair, that was sort of toward the, mm-hmm. at the end of his um, vitality, I guess, mental vitality. But I guess it sort of illustrates the, the, yes. the limits of, of, of taking a legal, a legal tack to this threat. Totally. Absolutely. Did not work, although um, it was very, very early in, in the process. So, yes, sure. Um, I, do, I would love to know what his mind would do, though, yeah. if it were still like at, it, at its peak um, with this challenge, which I do think might be partially a legal challenge. Famously, famous is the wrong word, famously for nerds like you and me, um, was interested in MySpace or his team was interested in MySpace or Murat came in over a weekend and bought it, uh, sort of led to him firing Tom Freston. And so there was a point where he was willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on MySpace, didn't get it, and instead really didn't buy anything for years after that. That's right. I was thinking about this. So, so he clearly was not able to sort of deal with the internet, didn't really figure out how to invest in it, didn't figure out how to fight it. I'm not sure. Is there any media mogul, though, from his era that has has really done it? It doesn't seem like they have. No. As, I, as far as I know, there really hasn't been. And so that's why, look, at the end of the book, the CEO of Viacom, um, Philippe Dom, and the as former CEO, he comes under a lot of criticism from a lot of places. The stock price did very poorly. He was overseeing Viacom when it basically invested in no digital. But in his defense, there really aren't a lot of good examples. I mean, there are people who who bought chunks of things. Yeah. Now, now we're getting a little close to, to home. I, I understand, but you know, there um, there's not a great example of a media mogul who got digital and did well. At no, best, I mean, love treaded water. Yeah, treaded water. I think the best you can say is that some companies are just relatively stronger, not frankly because they've invested in digital, but because they just have more. They've just got more stuff. Right? It's like that Disney and Comcast, right? right. Have enough mass that they might be able to sort of fend this off or at least position themselves. In a, in a, but not because you can point to any, any digital investment. That's why you're pointing at me saying it's yeah. close to home. Because <laughs> Comcast invested in us and BuzzFeed and Snap. And I think now they're done investing in advertising-based digital businesses is yes. my sense. Um, if you have a transactional business, they're very interested in that. We'll be fine. Um, <laughs> and this is a very nice office that they've helped us acquire. Now I've lost my train of thought because I was talking about like, Yeah, you got LaCroix. Everything's good here. Um, so then we get to this weird part of the, and which is this great part of the book, where Sumner Redstone's business is declining, and then at the same time his health and brain are declining. And I can't do this part of this, the story justice because that's why you wrote an entire book about it. But it's a crazy story um, with a bunch of twists and turns. Um, it is, it is, and you lay out quite clearly how pretty much everyone in this story behaves badly multiple times. I mean, it, the the best you can say for some of these people is that they weren't truthful, I think, in some cases. There's there's a back and forth where Philippe Demont, who's running Viacom, and Sherry Redstone are both battling over whether Sumner Redstone is, is coherent and competent and able to make decisions. And they basically flip positions yeah. within a year because they're having a, a, a different battle, but they, 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 they now take out opposite sides. Um, when you're reporting out a story like that, where it's clear that both multiple people are saying things in public that aren't true. How do you how do you sort of sift and winnow and, and figure out how you want to write about that? It was so hard because while I was writing this book, so much of the litigation is still ongoing. 
So <laughs> you, when we struggle with this in the newspaper all the time. In the um, journal, you're very constrained. You can't go, well, this is clearly bullshit, right? Because right. it's the, the journal and you have to... But as, a, as an author, yes. a little more... Yeah, so anyway, right? I tried with the the distance of some time to to say what I really thought about that in the book, and um, basically what I thought about that is that all those people knew for years that Sumner did not have it together uh, in his mind, but they all had very personal reasons for not basically telling shareholders that the salary drawing yeah. <laughs> chairman of this company. Um, was non complementis I, I feel like we were all kind of complicit, right? Like, I don't have any do- uh, fight, dog, whatever the metaphor is. Yeah, I don't no care. Dogs in the fight, but, sure. but, but I would listen into these conference calls, like you, even everybody else, and mm-hmm. you'd hear Sumner Redstone. He didn't seem like someone who was in command of himself. At, at the beginning, he would sort of utter these sort of, the, he would read a little phrase praising Les Moonves or praising Philippe Demont. It, it did not convey the sense that this guy was in charge of the company at this point. Sure. And we all just sort of went, oh. Right. And what's crazy is to this day, he is still legally having capacity. Yeah. So le- legally, right? Um, even though no one has seen or heard from him except for a few people who are close to Sherry. And that's all like yeah. secondhand. So the reason that no one pulled the trigger and said he does not, he lacks capacity, even though that they had a whole game plan for what to do when that happened, was because they, after he died, there was this trust. Sherry Redstone, his daughter, was on it. Philippe Demon was on it. And they each had a reason for not wanting that trigger to be pulled. Sherry didn't want it to be pulled because uh, that would mean that all of a sudden she was on a seven-person trust with her enemy, um, whether there was maybe a better way for her to get a more pull position, which is basically what happened. And, you know, Philippe, it's, it's complicated, but the two reasons he didn't do it are, number one, he was CEO of a company and getting paid millions a of dollars. A lot of Tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, he was very close to Sumner and... Sumner was legally okay, and I think that honestly a lot of people said it would have really hurt Sumner's feelings if he'd been declared incapacitated, which I know sounds totally ridiculous. Yep. There's, I, I, again, I can't do it justice. There is a whole cast of characters. There's multiple girlfriends living with him in his, his mansion in, in Beverly Hills. Um, there's the nurses who are kind of on his side and, and secretly reporting back what the girlfriends are doing back to Sherry Redstone. There's Philippe Demont sort of sneaking in to see him and demanding that the, all these folks leave the room so we can have a private conversation. There's debate what that conversation means. Um, there's a crazy sex tape that I didn't ever remember hearing about until I read your book that yeah. I played for myself last night. I'm sorry. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's not, it's not him actually having sex. It's him trying to entice uh, a woman to have a foursome with himself, someone else, and Bob Evans, the famed producer. And if you don't want to eat, you should yeah. go listen to that. Tape. I apologize for, for it's that. It's crazy. It is crazy. So, you know, I think something happens maybe to your mind at the end of your life as you're starting to sort of lose a grasp. You, think, you think that's a sign of, of his decline, not, not this is the person who we had been for. There's, you have a throwaway line in there about him going to a, someone taking him and his wife to a, a sex show in Thailand. And you say it was, it was, his, it was his first glimpse of commercial sex, but wouldn't, wouldn't be his last. <laughs> That's true. And that was in the 90s. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yes, he had these tastes for a long time, um, for sure. And, and again, I did not, it's not just that it's the, the sex part is lowered. Like, he's a, he's a, he's a gross person. He, he throws steaks and turkey legs at waitstaff that upset him. He's a, he's a, the polite version is difficult, right? But I don't think he would want to be in his family. I mean, he was a terrible father. I didn't yeah. come out and say it. 
I think to me the the biggest takeaway about him and really the whole book is the the limits and the risks of this sort of meritocratic idea that if you're smart enough, you basically can take whatever you want, you know, that you earned the thing that you built through your brilliant decisions and therefore you have endless license to treat people like dirt, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, and then, and then you can buy, yeah, and you can, and if you have enough power, this, we, we're used to this with sort of more traditional celebrities, you can create a world in which no one's going to tell you otherwise. No He's, one's going to stop you from doing things. Right. And that are clearly bad for other people and ultimately for yourself. And the essence of the Redstone fight is that he, he did surround himself with these lieutenants um, and he created all these trust and estate plans, et cetera, et cetera, consisting of these guys, these dudes, mostly from Boston, yeah. not exclusively. Philippe was one of them. Um, but because of his divorce um, with his wife of 52 years, his daughter had to be technically part of that. And she was not a yes man like everyone else. And that is where all of the conflict comes from. You seem uh, sympathetic to Sherry Redstone as a character, even though she, uh, again, pol- the polite version was she has some hard edges herself. Yeah. She's not a hero yeah. at all, um, but she's had to put up with a lot of crap. Um, crap from her father and then crap uh, as a woman not being taken seriously in the business, as a woman not being taken seriously because she's dad's daughter at the company in the way that presumably Brian Roberts did not have to deal with uh, at his at his father's company while he was building Comcast. Right. That's true. Um, I mean, if you just look at her resume, what, when it was weird. When I write about Sherry, I get all these comments um, in the commenting section of the newspaper that are – disgusting and savage and sexist yeah. as you might think and you know who, who is this person she's never done a single thing in her life she's just some heiress and that's not true I mean she worked at the theater company for decades you know she's a lawyer herself she's a lawyer herself she did all the things that her father before her had done to earn a place into national amusements she did take 10 years off to be with her kids but she's not like yeah. sitting on the couch eating bonbons um, and I I feel like she has had to overcome so much doubt um, that that I thought that was an important part of the story to tell. That said, there are voices in the book that tell what they think about her managerial and operational capabilities that are not complimentary. Yeah, you you draw a parallel between her and Catherine Graham, now lauded as the, the former owner of, of the Washington Post. Yeah, there's a movie about her. I know. Yeah, uh, and 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 again, it's, it's worth pointing out she's literally the only woman running a media empire right now. So, oh. Running, but also owning. That yeah. was what, when I really started to look at it, there's so much talk about where women are in the hierarchy of management, but those are all just salaried people, you know? I mean, this world really runs yeah. on who owns things. And yes, these are public companies, but there's never, you know, as I said in the, the piece today, there's never been a woman in American history that is controlled as an owner as much media as she does now. And, and what do you think her, her end game is? Um, I have a sense, but I want to hear your, your version of it. You know, present tense, she controls both CBS and Viacom. She, at one point, she now at twice has tried to get them to merge. Um, she's fighting one of, one of her employees about whether that's going to happen. Um, regardless of how that fight works out, what do you think her intent is? I think she would love to merge CBS and Viacom and sell the whole thing to Verizon. Right. That's kind of the boring answer, but... Um, right, and, and, and which is, again, sort of where we're at, right? Like, no one has a good plan. No one who's running a media company has a good plan to keep running it. 
Right. Right. It's it's find someone else to buy it, merge if you can to sort of stay bigger and stave off things, but but hopefully hope someone comes and bails you out. Right, which tells you everything. That's the same thing as the the Fox story. I mean, that's why Rupert Murdoch is selling his empire because he didn't see any way out, which I guess kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit before. Like if that's the playing field, like maybe we should examine the playing field. Yeah, I keep talking about that and asking people who are selling and buying, look, if if Rupert Murdoch is selling, he's a really good operator. If Jeff Bukas is selling, he's a really good operator. Why Why do you want to be the buyer? Which is a different question. Yeah, that is a great question. And the people who are buyers, the Verizons, the AT&Ts, I think that they, first of all, they're so big, right, that it's if, if it all goes south, it's not the yep. end of the world. Yep. I mean, Time Warner is a very expensive company, but still. Um, so that's part of it. And their own businesses are pinched. You know, the wireless business growth isn't great. So I can see why one might think that bundling content with wireless might be a good idea. I'm not convinced that it is. Yeah, you and I have the same same eyebrow raise <laughs> about this. I mean, yeah, I think the, the AT&T thing is they can't quite come out and say this, but we have a slow slash no growth business. We think if we add another slow slash no growth business to that, at least we can continue to keep things steady. Right. And theoretically, you know, to Bundle together distribution. Bundle and, something, advertising and something, something. It's all kind of hand wavy. It is a little hand wavy. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious to see what happens when, you know, that now we're going to see, like, okay, what's your actual plan for doing this? And now we're going to take a quick break. We're back with Keith Hagee. Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Are you worried about your digital privacy these days? You are not alone. No matter what you do online, your mobile carrier and internet service provider can track it all. Every website you visit, every email you send. Kind of creepy. That's why you can use ExpressVPN. It's the world's leading VPN provider that lets you securely use the internet without being tracked by anyone. You can keep your online activity private and anonymous while you browse, email, download, or stream. It's very good for streaming content if that's your thing. It's an easy-to-use app that encrypts all of your internet data and hides your IP address, protecting your entire connection. ExpressVPN costs less than 7 bucks a month. It runs seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet. You can take back your internet privacy today. To find out how you can get three months free, go to expressvpn.com media. I'm going to spell ExpressVPN for you. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash media for three months free with a one-year package. Go to expressvpn.com slash media to learn more. You point out in the book that uh, Viacom um, was an early investor in Vice, yeah, which seemed smart at the time. Then they unwound it. And in, in the, the way you're telling the story, like them unwinding Vice is, 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 a, is an opportunity they missed, right? Because they, the company went on to become much more valuable. Um, most recently, it's worth $6 billion. Um, but since that last round of, of money, Shane Smith is out, Nancy Dubuque is in, there's a lot of stories, a lot of reporting about maybe the, the company is not nearly as, as solid as we thought it was. There's always questions about it. Where do, what do you think happens to Vice? Well, that is a challenging question. Do I... Th- okay, what do I think? I think that it is possible that... Um, TPG could end up with control of the company. This is the equity fund. The equity fund the, that came the, in. The, did the last round. Right. With um, pretty... Ratchets. Onerous terms. I mean, that's a, maybe a worst case scenario. Um, 
I do think it will be interesting to see um, when some of the investors who've been in there for a while, who have seen great uh, growth in value, um, want out. Are they really going to get out at the current valuation? I don't think people think that. You wrote one of the stories laying out quite specifically that Vice and Disney were in sales talks. Disney was looking at buying Vice. Shane Smith, who was running Vice, said, I'm I'm happy to sell. Um, There were months where everyone said, oh, this deal is happening. It's a done deal. They're they're doing the due diligence over in Williamsburg right now. It's it's, it's done. It's done. It's done. Um, It wasn't even an open secret, right? We all just said it was happening. Didn't happen. Why do you think that deal didn't happen? A couple of reasons. Um, I think that is a cultural clash a little bit. Um, I think that Disney was scared of the Vice brand and all the dangers that came with it. For all the obvious reasons that we saw at the get-go. But at one point they said, well, that's okay, That's they're cool. We like that they're cool. But right. Then they, you thought they had second thoughts about that. So there's certainly a, a cultural thing. Um, also what happened is the their Vice's TV channel yeah. was a bit disappointing out of the gate. And spoken <laughs> like spoken like a, a Wall Street Journal Sorry. reporter. It's a zero. I mean, I know I know Nancy will jump down my throat or anyone's throat for saying yeah. it. But they created this Viceland channel, and no one's watching it. Right. I mean, do you really want to be the last person on earth to launch a cable channel? That's basically what it was. And it was this great counterintuitive. We look at our balls, right? We're we're so we're so we're so great at this that we can make millennials watch cable TV. Right. Was the vice pitch. Right. Turns out they can't. And it was maybe, I mean, the real the real benefit to them was to go to their advertisers and say, now you can be on TV. Mm-hmm. Because that's what, you know, even still with all the data and targeting, you right. know, advertisers. And then Shane Smith made me always saying, and by the way, we're getting paid for this. So, so look how smart we are because we're getting paid to, to put this stuff out there. Right. So launching these cha- cable channels is yeah. very, very, very hard. It takes years. And especially if you're venture funded, you know, do they do the time to build that audience, especially the whole thing's shrinking. So um, I you think, think... You think launching that cable channel is the thing that sort of ultimately sunk? The, the non-performance of that is what sunk it for Disney? Uh, I don't think that's the only thing, but I do know that the, that, that came back to the whole chain of, of A&E and Disney yep. and did not um, put a halo around the heads of the people responsible for those decisions within the Disney chain of command. Right. We're, we're, we already have a lot of problems with our cable channels. We've already invested in this thing. Why do we want to own the entire thing? We've already got, we've got multiple problems with cable channels. Why would we want to go and, and buy another problem? Also, um, the way they made Viceland out of H2, right. which is like this History Channel spinoff, and H2 had pretty good ratings. Yeah. You know, that was, a, that was a sure thing. So you can see how some bean counters up at Disney <laughs> would squint and look Scratching at that and say, head. okay, now let me get this right. Now you've got Nancy Buke, who, who championed that deal at A&E, yeah. is now out of A&E and now running Vice. It's kind of her mess to clean up. Yeah. Uh, I think she'll be able to. <sighs> I think that she's an experienced programmer who, if anyone can fix the channel, it would be her, right? She knows how to make shows that have beginning, middles, and ends. Um, do I think that she can, by fix, well, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean sell the company for more than $5.7 billion? No. Yeah. Do you, uh, so let's bring this back to media moguls. One of the, the things that interests me is, is the lack of sort of new and interesting media moguls, right? They're, they're literally leaving the stage. They're selling off. They're going to be dying. Um, there aren't really interesting internet media moguls replacing them. Internet moguls replacing them. Of the current crop of sort of younger media moguls, right? The Brian Robertses, James Lachlan. It's a pretty short list, right? Yeah. Who, are you, who are you most intrigued by as a character? 
who are you most intrigued about writing about for the next five years? Oh, for the next five years. Um, well, look, the new I, this is strange because I work for the Wall Street Journal, but I do feel like the younger Murdochs are interesting. I think yeah. that's like a juicy story that um, people have, have taken cracks at, but there's a lot more there. Um, do you think James leaves leaves? I mean, he's going to leave the company. Do you think he leaves media? No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, I, I know that he's going off to do some investing yeah. thing. Uh, a little unclear what that is, I think, even to him at this point. Um, I don't think it will necessarily be limited to media. He has a very, um, a mind that can really absorb technological concepts very well. So I could totally see him just doing tech stuff. He's a technocrat. He's like into talking about targeted advertising or at least was yeah, six months ago. Like to a degree for a CEO that is yeah. I've only ever seen in um, Tim Armstrong actually. But um, besides that uh, I mean Lachlan is actually a character that people haven't read a lot about or know a lot about and I think he's going to become increasingly interesting. Um, but beyond that like your your first point is true. I mean there isn't like a new we're going to have to invest Crop. some. <laughs> yeah. How about you? I nominate Peter Kafka. Uh, nope. <laughs> um, I'm sure if Jim Bankoff is still listening. Yes. But Jim, Jim makes a point of being aggressively dull in the best way possible. Well, there, there are advantages to that, yeah. right? I mean, you're, you're not going to write a book about Jim. <laughs> which is good. Jim, I say this, I say this with <laughs> much love and respect as your employee. <laughs> Keith, this is a great book. Um, people should read it. Um, you did yourself a terrible disservice because you, you tweeted out uh, a review that said, this book will not put you to sleep on the beach. <laughs> we can do better than that. This is a wild-ass book. This is a crazy story. There is sex. There's crazy family drama. There's billions of dollars. Um, it's got a Shakespearean scope to it. You should go read it. There, that's, that's, that's my tweet-length review. Good? Thank you. Kichegi, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Keech. And thanks to you guys for listening. As always, we only have one ask of you, which is to tell someone else about this show. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media, who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show, and to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I am back next week. See you then. Today's show is brought to you by Facebook. In 2017, Facebook hit more than 2 billion users. And then at the beginning of 2018, Facebook found itself at the center of a broader conversation happening around the spread of fake news on the internet. To help shed some light on the work that goes into the fight against misinformation, Facebook partnered with documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville to create a short film called Facing Facts. Facing Facts takes viewers inside Facebook headquarters to learn more about the complex challenges the social network is facing. It's a unique opportunity to pull back the curtain and take a critical look at how Facebook is addressing these issues. Get an inside look at Facebook's fight against misinformation. Watch the film at InsideFeed.com.